Uh, this is David at Opposing the Matrix, and uh, what we're doing here is we are with Ralph Epperson. Hi, Ralph. How you doing? Doing fine. Yeah. Good. You're coming a lot loud and clear. Your your nines across the board, man. Thank you very much. I'm glad to hear you. CP work. <laughs> I'm wearing my Dodger hat because we're going to win the national championship either today or tomorrow. So. Yeah, it kind of hurt something like that, but then I've. I've watched science fiction all my life. So. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> anyway, folks, we're celebration. <laughs> okay, we're going to be uh, talking tonight about um, this is uh, an intro to uh, Ralph's video, uh, America's uh, Vietnam, America's uh, betrayal and treason, and Ralph mentioned something about uh, premeditated murder too. So he'll let us know about that before we. Uh, before we start the video, um, but um, so Ralph, uh, last week we we uh, did part one and two. I, I'm calling it part one because we're only doing two parts on the on the yeah. on our radio show. But um, so uh, you're going to be doing parts three and four, and uh, part one and two is uh, quite intriguing. It really was. And uh, so how are we how are we going to continue today uh, with with parts three and four? Well, I, I want to. I want to, if I may, I'll talk just briefly oh, about. Oh, sure, please. We got lots of time. The uh, uh, I lived in Portland, Oregon, and uh, well, let's see if I do it. Let's go back. I'll I'll tell the Portland story and then bring it up to date in Tucson. I was uh, working up in the in Portland, Oregon, in one of these tall, you know, twenty fifteen story buildings, and I looked out the window and I saw a. Um, anti-war, Vietnamese anti-war protests coming down the street, the main street in Portland. So I said, I'm going to go down and watch. It was lunchtime. So I went down there and I watched as they came by. First of all, I saw a man on his bigger van. There was no writing on it, so it was a private van. And he had a megaphone. And he, he was telling the, the group that were marching with him together, one, two, three, four, we don't want your, and then F, the, the, the G war. And I said, why would he use that language? Why would he use that word? Well, it's hip, you know, it's hip to be in. I said, but look, he's talking to me to end the war. And I said, wait a minute, I'm not going to end. That's terrible. I'm not going to end the war because you, 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 what you, if you want me, to, want me to join you, give me some reason to do so. And then right. they stopped, and right in front of me, they burned the Vietnamese flag. Oh, wow. Right in front of me. No, I'm sorry. They burned the American flag. Oh, okay. A few people behind them, there was an American flag, a Vietnam flag, the Viet Cong flag. Now, they didn't burn that flag, but they, now, wait a minute. Standing beside me is a grandma who's got her grandson in Vietnam fighting against that flag, and he's being shot at by people carrying that flag, and they're carrying it, and we're supposed to support the end of war in Vietnam? Mm -hmm. That didn't make sense. No. And it, 
Then I went the next morning, I got the morning newspaper. They started at Portland State University on the campus. And I said, that's a strange place to start. And then it dawned on me it wasn't at all because the majority of those marchers were students at Portland State. And I said, wait a minute. Here's a bunch of students getting paid by the government who hate the government. And they're getting federal aid education to Portland State, and yet they're turning out a product of an anti-government student. Huh. I said, if I carried signs in front of my office, or of course, you know, we're on the ground, my boss is a pig, I hate him, he doesn't pay us enough, he's got working conditions aren't fair, uh, he's angry to me. I wouldn't work there very long, would I? No. Uh-uh. So then it dawned on me, the universities were doing this intentionally. They're oh, getting okay. paid to turn out anti-war protesters. Mm-hmm. And then I read in the paper where they started out right downtown at the beginning of the parade with some skyscrapers and jewelry stores, and they smashed in windows. That's oh, not the way to convince me to end the war, support the war. They were doing everything wrong. That's and that right. dawned on me, they were created to prolong the war. Because the government and the media said, your country right or wrong. So you got two choices. It's not your country right or wrong or victory. Victory is not an option. They took the V away. Remember what this was with Winston Churchill during World War II? V mm-hmm. victory. No, it meant V for peace. Mm-hmm. I used to joke, well, they don't know how to spell the word victory, so they spelled it P-E-A-C for the V. So, in other words, they were created specifically to prolong the war because they wouldn't let the soldiers win it. And suddenly, the people in Vietnam fighting force would get the newspaper, and here's the, the hippies burning the American flag, wearing the flag on their shorts, and they're, you know, uh, wrapped around their head and everything else with disgust. And they're fighting with that flag against the Viet Cong flag, and they're carrying the Viet Cong flag proudly. Let me say this. <clears throat> I want to confirm the story. That'll be my little story to start with. Years later, when I was working for the school district, I think I might have told you this part. Uh, the listeners probably haven't heard it. I was working in, as a, what they call a risk manager, something new in the field back in the 80s. So I'm sitting in my office, and the guy walks in with his business card, and he says, I'm a, 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 from Phoenix. I'm I'm with your industrial identity, which is your workman's cop carrier. I said, okay, so what can I do for you? So we started talking. So I said, I'm going to get a fuel of mine. Like, who is He said, yes, we drove together. And during what he's very dignified, very erect, very handsome, probably six foot four. Uh, every click, you know, he had a suit on, every crease was there. His shape mm-hmm. took on, no fuzz on his, you know. So I, he's mentioned he was a retired military. So when we got back to the place, I asked him, I said, listen, uh, uh, if you don't mind, what what rank uh, did you retire at? He said, I was a colonel, which is, as you know, one step away from a general. Mm-hmm. So I said, uh, we talked about this, and I don't know how the story came up, but I used my story as I just told you. And I said, I figured it out that the, the anti-war protesters were created by the people in charge of the war to convince us your country right or wrong. You either support your country or you burn the American flag. Right. What about victory? Victory's not an option. He said, 
you're smarter than you give on, aren't you? I said, well, I didn't know. He said, really, you're smart enough to figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. So he said, you're right. And he was in favor of this thing, by the way. Well, we found that out later. But as we talked, we talked once over at dinner. Um, so anyway, I just want you to know that we're going to tell that story, and I'll give you some illustrations of it. And, and you mentioned uh, premeditated murder. I think we covered this in the last segment, but if, even if we did, it's very important. The President of the United States has the sole authority to control exports from our nation of any good, especially to Eastern European nations like Russia, China, Albania, all these communist nations. So he doesn't need Congress to vote on it. He doesn't need to go on television and tell her we're going to stop it. You have to vote for it on Thursday. He's got the sole power to do it. Mm-hmm. Richard Nixon gave a speech in 1968 during the campaign in which he promised there should be no aid or credits to any nation, including Russia, that aids the enemy in Vietnam. But he knew that 80% of the technology going into Vietnam, North Vietnam, through Haiphong, to go arm the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong to kill Americans, he had the power to stop it with mm-hmm. a word, no more. Tell the Department of Commerce, no more. Wait a minute. Since he didn't do that, he was aiding and abetting the enemy. That's right. It's definition of treason in the Constitution. It's one of the only words I can, I can think of in the whole Constitution that's defined. Treason mm-hmm. shall consist in aid and comfort to the enemy. Right. Now, wait a minute. If he's selling the goods to kill Americans and had the power to stop it, I contend he was premeditated, whatever the word is, guilty of premeditated first-degree murder. Mm-hmm. I agree. First-degree murder. Mm-hmm. He had the power to stop it with a, with the a, a word. Tell the Department of Commerce, no more licenses to give, because you need a license to export to Russia, wherever it was. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Johnson was also guilty of that. Johnson, right. the part. But Nixon made a promise in 68, and one of the speeches when I gave that point out, someone raised his hand and said, I was there the day that he gave it at the so-and-so, uh, I think it was the American Legion Convention in Kansas City, uh, when we invited Nixon to speak, and I heard him say that. Oh, wow. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. The U.S. News and World Report. They had a review of what Nixon said and what his promises were. No aid or trade. I've saved it. It's in the, it's in the DVD. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sorry, but I don't say that. The Constitution says it. Giving yeah. comfort to the enemy is called treason. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of no different, Ralph, than uh, the Benghazi thing that happened recently. Yes. Or, you know, or... Um, or Obama um, aiding and abetting the um, the uh, insurgents they call them uh, over in uh, Syria while we were trying to fight against them at the same time. You know, well, this this is how crazy this government is today. Uh, it's it, it just I don't understand what's happening. What well, I do understand, I've been studying conspiracy for fifty years of my life. 
and I'm convinced 100 percent that I'm right. So anyway, that's what I thought. It might be a good little story to start. You're going to see it displaying. It might be in this one. Uh, uh, I think so. But it wasn't. It was in the first part. But if you didn't see the first part, I want you to be aware of that as you watch this video, that the anti-war protesters were paraded by the people running our government because they wanted to prolong the war. Our mm -hmm. country right around. Oh, yes, the other one. Uh, if you don't, if you don't love it, leave it. Something like that. Right. So the America, choice was, yeah. and 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 anytime the the anti the pro victory people marched on Washington D.C., the media was always covering a bake sale. You see, mm -hmm. there's a bake sale. We're not cover that. We're not going to cover the hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand people marching for victory. Right. That's how the media played a role in that war. They knew they were just as guilty as, as uh, Nixon and Johnson. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, because I, I remember a little bit from that era. Um, and I remember uh, Walter Cronkite being on, on the air every every night. And one of the things that he excelled in, I think it was a, a campaign to uh, demoralize uh, the soldiers, but he would or the, the American public. But. He would always it would always start out today in Vietnam, you know, um, you know, so many hundreds of troops were killed. Yes. You know, and and there's nothing worse than than broadcasting something like that in front of in front of the uh, the parents of the soldiers that are out there, you yes. know, in, in their ice paddies being shot down, you yes. know. And yes. So the, the press was definitely uh, implicit in, uh, in a lot of the stuff that went on, would you say? That whole war just didn't make sense. And I was, I, I hated to go against my government. But once I found out what they were doing, I had to go against our government. They were the ones. It wasn't the generals that made these decisions. It was the bureaucrats in the Pentagon or even the State Department. And, of course, right. with Nixon's knowledge and permission. And Johnson mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. yeah. I, re I remember we, um, we took, I lived in New Jersey at the time. We took a field trip out to Lakehurst Naval Air Station. Uh, there's a whole complex out there. There's Lakehurst, there's uh, McGuire Air Force Base, and Fort Dix. They're all, you know, one after the other, not necessarily in that order. But, uh, yeah, we took a trip out there in a school bus, and uh, there were some Marines that were uh, that were training. They were running. And as we drove by them, I don't know what possessed me to do it, but I flashed a peace sign at them. Yeah. And I was really admonished by my teacher. He says, no, you don't do that. He says, that, that insults these guys. You know, they're, they're going over there to fight, and that's, that's a symbol of the people that are against these guys that are going over to fight. So I got a little education right there, you know, and it was uh, it, something that always stuck with me, you know. And uh, so that's just to just, just show you how even as a kid I was, uh, you know, we were, um, I'm trying to think of the word, um, formed. Yeah. Uh, our, our opinion is formed yes. uh, in a certain way, but by, by the press and by uh, what we saw on TV all the time, you know. And so it was, it was a lose-lose situation, basically. I think is what I'm trying to say. When the Vietnamese veterans came back, remember they were spat upon, called baby killers, and everything else. Now yeah. we're saluting and we're praising our. You go up to a guy with a uniform and thank you for his service. But but in Vietnam after they came back. Now, I was I was a boy about eight I guess when World War II ended, and uh, my mother was born in Brooklyn. My grandmother lived there, so we went back there, 
And my aunt worked at a, uh, a building down at the end of the uh, Manhattan Island that was tall enough to uh, to look down. I could see the Statue of Liberty, and down there was a park in front of her building, and she was like 20 stories up. And so I was able to, and the troop carriers were coming back covered with brown uniforms. You couldn't uh-huh. even see the deck. It was really very moving. And then the next day or two days later, uh, they all marched, and we gave a ticker tape parade. But when the Vietnam veterans came back, we spat on them and called them baby killers. Yeah. It's, it was a tragic day what we did to the Vietnamese soldiers. I feel yeah. so even today. So. Yeah. And that's why it's kind of, you know, like we last week we went through such lengths to, to explain to our listeners that, uh, you know, we're not doing this to defame the Vietnam soldiers. We're doing this to, to show that, that the government was was corrupt, that the government was uh, betrayed the American public and the American soldier, yeah. and uh, and committed treason against against the American people and the and the American soldier. Yes. So yeah, we we applaud what they did over there. You know, they they didn't know they were young kids. They just left their farms, they left the cities, and they just you know. Granted, there was a draft, and some of them didn't want to go, but they went anyway. Yes. Because they thought it was their sworn duty to do so, and uh, so we, I, I applaud them actually. I do too. I, I, I admire them. I see once in a while you'll see someone carrying a hat, wearing a hat with, like this with a Vietnam veteran, and if I can get to him, I'll say thank you for your service. And they, they're always very gracious. And they will thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. But he went, and uh, I, I don't, I don't understand. Uh, because once they got there, they saw how futile it was. They weren't right. allowed to win. They couldn't. They couldn't have major victories. It was you, you shoot and then retreat, and then go out and shoot again and retreat, and go out and shoot again and then retreat. That was common. You take the land and you keep it, and then move forward till they're gone. But they didn't do that. Right. right. The whole war was just madness, as you're going to see. I think. Yeah, I think uh, Korea was probably a precursor to that. Um, I think you'd agree with that, uh, with MacArthur and everything. Yeah, it was um, World War Two was the last. Um, without trying to insult anybody, it was the last war that we went in to win. Let's put it that way. Well, that's what you know. I think it was MacArthur said. Something uh, 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 about a war with only only victory is the option in a war, which makes sense. I don't think that's the exact quote, but but it's something like that. You don't go into a war to, to to slow it down and kill people because people die in wars. That's mm-hmm. bad enough. And then secondly, to to not give them the ability to win the darn and go home is madness. Yeah, that's and right. These guys served two or three terms, and I presume they just got fed up with it. They came back and they were in a, they couldn't get a job because they got hooked on drugs, and that was mm-hmm. also designed. You're going to see that in the video. Yeah, and yeah. I've concluded that the war was fought to create a drug culture in America. That's why they weren't allowed to win it. And I think that's in there. I've got the uh, DVD, uh, my copy of it here. I think it's in there. We'll see. Okay. 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 Well, that's enough. I think to wet their hopefully wet their appetite. And then, by the way, I want to mention this while I'm here. Uh, Ralph Epperson is available. I, uh, you can see I'm live modestly in Tucson, Arizona. I'm in uh-huh. what's called my man cave where I where I got my computer and all of my files, etc. And so I'm just sitting casually 
Uh, but I answer the phone. If I were there, I sit right here and talk to people all day long. Sometimes I get I get on the phone for two, three hours talking to people. So mm-hmm. if you got a question or comment or even a criticism, know you can reach me. And lastly, I think you'll maybe mention my website, www.ralph, R-A-L-P-H, P is in particular, R-A-L-P-H dash Epperson, E-P-P is in Peter, P-P-E-R, S-O-N dot com, of course. You don't have to buy, just go and browse. I want you to see how enormous this problem is that we're in right now. Yeah. This country is insured. Even with Donald Trump doing what he can to help us, uh, it's still an enormous problem. Yeah. We're in trouble. Yeah, the tentacles of the deep state go, they go far and deep. Yes. You know, and uh, he's got his work cut out for him, and, you know, God help him to do it. But, uh, yeah, definitely. So, Ralph, uh, you know, do you want to give out a phone number? Do you want to? Oh, no, I don't. Uh, it's uh, area code 520 886 Okay, 4380. Okay. Yes. Good. Okay, that having been said, folks, we're going to. Um, meld this video into uh, the video that Ralph's already produced and uh, and place it up on the website uh, forthwith um, probably uh, later tonight or early tomorrow morning. So, um, Ralph, uh, thank you for uh, everything you've done and everything you're doing. And um, I look forward to, to more days of us uh, um, doing things like this. I really do. And uh, and and that that will happen, of course. That's that's a given. David, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity uh, to get to you and your listeners because I think what I've got to say is very very important. I believe. I do. I agree. I agree 100. percent So, I'm going to say, uh, folks, uh, just hold on to your hold on to your seats, tighten up your seat belts. Uh, if you remember from last week, I warned you. You better have done it. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> You better do it again because you're going to learn things now that you've probably never heard of before. So, Ralph, uh, thank you, and uh, and uh, uh, I'll be with you just a second. We'll we'll stop this and start the other thing. So, thank you very much. David. God bless you. You're welcome. You too. On we go with the show, folks. Vietnam, America's betrayal and treason. This number two, section three of four. Now, as I explain the next part of the story, please keep saying Russia is neutral. Russia is (laughs) neutral. Remember that these bladders felt that if we escalated the war, Russia might get directly involved and we would be facing the threat of a nuclear war. So it appears as if that is why these planners did not seek a victory in this war. We have already seen how the Russians sent supplies to North Vietnam to kill Americans. Now let's see if they had any other involvement in the war. During that time, personally, I personally felt that they were doing more than supplying the North Vietnamese. I believe that they actually had troops there. But I had no proof until April the 14th, 1989, when this article appeared in my local newspaper. The headline reads, as you can see, Soviet Army also fought in Vietnam. And the article said, Soviet soldiers sent to the Vietnam War as anti-aircraft technicians 
took part in missile launching combat and shot down U.S. aircraft. The article quoted a Soviet colonel as saying that his regiment had fired 43 missiles and downed 23 airplanes. Remember, keep saying that if we got Russia mad, they would start firing missiles at us. I would like to now give you some confirmation that our government knew that the Russians were actually providing soldiers to assist in the fighting in Vietnam. This is Colonel Laird Gutterson, who was an Air Force pilot in Vietnam and who was shot down by a missile and was a prisoner of war for many years before he was released at the end of the war. He came to one of my speeches on Vietnam and came up to talk to me after the lecture. He said he knew that the Russians were on the ground firing missiles at him and other Air Force pilots. I asked him how he knew, and he replied that they were told which missile sites had Russian soldiers at them during their briefings by Air Force intelligence before they flew their missions. He told me that they were told not to fire at those missile sites, even if they fired missiles at them. I asked him what he did with that information, and he said that he just flew by obeying the instructions of the Air Force officers briefing them. You see, we did not want to get the Russians mad at us because if we did, they might send soldiers into Vietnam with missiles they could fire at us. And I responded that he had more courage than I had. If I was an Air Force pilot under these circumstances, I would have walked into my commanding officer's office and told him that I was quitting. I was going home. I was not going to fight in a war where someone was stacking all of the odds against me. I admitted that I would, I would probably have been court-martialed for disobeying an order, but then I would come back to America and tell the American people the truth about how the war was being waged. But Colonel Gunderson and probably hundreds of other pilots or colonels did not do this. And the war went on. And if all of the pilots had stopped and gone home, the war would have ended. Because without Air Force pilots, there would be no air war in Vietnam. And without soldiers who also stopped and went home, there would have been no ground war in Vietnam. Remember the bumper sticker, suppose they gave a war and no one showed up. But no one stopped and went home and 58,000 Americans died. Now, I would like to address the belief of these government planners, including Henry Kissinger, that if we got Russia angry at us during the war, we could be facing a nuclear war with them firing nuclear missiles at the United States. And I want to comment by bringing it to your attention that I have discovered the documented evidence that the claim that Russia has thousands of nuclear-tipped missiles is a gigantic lie. I would like to show you a four-hour DVD that I produced entitled Only the U.S. Has Nukes, in which I provide the evidence so that you can know that these planners knew that this was true, even as they were saying that we should not escalate this war because of the nuclear war threat. Now, I understand that the world believes that Russia does have thousands of nuclear-tipped missiles, and that I am probably the only one in the world that I know of, at least, 
claiming that there is a this is a huge lie and that our government knows this. And I have provided you with the evidence that I've accumulated in over 40 years of research into this subject. May I suggest that you open up and give me four hours of your time to watch this DVD. And I am convinced that the evidence will convince you that I am right. Now, if that is true, and I can provide evidence that our own government knows this, then we need to examine the reasons they were advancing this theory. And my best explanation is that this was their way of convincing the skeptics that they should support this limited warfare because of the threat of a nuclear war from Russia if we escalated it. And this would be their method of getting the support of hundreds of bureaucrats and the media in their no-victory scenario. And that would explain why they continued this war for 10 years when they had the way to win it. It is the only thing that makes sense because it is the only way they could drag this war out for a decade to get the soldiers and others so frustrated they would revert to other means to escape it. So may I repeat myself and encourage you to visit my website shown at the end of this DVD and locate the DVD entitled Only the U.S. Has Nukes and then be open. It will make enormous sense to you and will finally explain how they tricked us into continuing a no-win war for 10 years. Now I'd like to return to the narrative. I would like to remind you that I asked you to become members of a jury at the beginning of this presentation, and I would like you to be as impartial as you can be because there are some things we need to discuss that are not pleasant, but that we need to examine. Because it is quite likely that even when you hear it, you will probably hold that I cannot be right. This simply could not have happened. In other words, it is quite likely that you will not believe it. So it will be my challenge to document the case as well as I can and hope that you will accept what your eyes will tell you. Because what I've discovered will make enormous sense about why we planned the war and then fought it for about 10 years. I've discovered the evidence that President John Kennedy was assassinated because he wanted to end a war before it started. He was murdered by a conspiracy so evil that it boggles the mind to even think about it. He was murdered for a reason that, as far as I can tell, no one else in this nation is saying. We have been lied to, and it is time to finally tell the truth. So with that understanding, it is now time to tell the truth about Vietnam, America's betrayal, and treason. It is my contention that the civilian planners inside the American government actually planned on frustrating the American fighting man for a reason that has not been made known to the American people. I'm going to act as a prosecutor by presenting the evidence that a major crime was committed by some powerful and influential people in and around the American government. But you say the defense is not here, 
present to defend itself. But the truth is that the defense has been defending itself all during the conduct of the war and ever since it ended in 1975. You have heard their defense for about 35 years. Lastly, I'm going to charge these planters with the crime of first-degree premeditated murder. Let me start by discussing how the academic world and the media work together with the government to make certain that the war was not won. Let me illustrate that with the use of a specific example that happened to me. In 1970, I was working in downtown Portland, Oregon. One day during lunchtime, I saw an anti-war protest demonstration come down the street in amongst the skyscrapers of downtown Portland. I thought I would stay and watch, so I went to the curb and stood as it passed by. The first thing I saw was a man on the roof of a large van with a battery-powered hand microphone. He was leading the marchers in a chant that went like this. One, two, three, four. We don't want your F dot 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 war. Now, I've chosen not to say that word because that they were using, the word that they were using in that chant because I do not use it in my vocabulary. And then I thought that was a very curious thing to say if they wanted me and the other observers to support their cause. You would think they would use words that would appeal to the people standing and watching. Then as the marchers came by, I noticed that one of them was carrying the American flag. I was taught as a boy to stand when I saw the American flag in a parade. I love that flag and the republic for which it stands. It is to be a symbol of the freedoms that we as free people have in America, including the right to protest a governmental action such as this war. And then, right in front of me and many others, they burned the flag. This was really a strange thing to do if they wanted me and the others to support their goal. Yet they did so, and did so in hundreds of protest marches all over America during the war. And then I saw someone in the march proudly carrying the flag of the North Vietnamese, as illustrated in this photograph in the yellow rectangle to the right. They were carrying the flag of the enemy, the flag under which the enemy was killing American soldiers. And no one burned that flag. There were probably people watching who had family members fighting in this war or who had learned that they had died in combat against those who carried this flag in battle. This was just after they burned the American flag right in front of me and the others on the curb. Then I learned after the march was over that they had committed acts of vandalism against some of the buildings at the beginning of their march. Now, I started thinking about the entire thing after they had passed by. They had done everything they could to convince me and the others not to support their cause. Every one of these acts was intended to get me and the others to react against them and what they were doing. And I remembered two slogans that were made popular during the war itself. And it occurred to me that neither of these offered us a victory in the war. 
The first of these was your country, right or wrong. It dawned on me that this was teaching America that you should support your government even when they were wrong by not committing this nation to a victory in Vietnam. We were to continue to support their no-win, no-victory position. There was no way we could protest and demand a victory and still love our country. Those of us who wanted a victory did not love our country. The second phrase was love it or leave it. This meant that if you did not support your government in their no-win strategy, you should leave the country. Once again, you could not love your country if you demanded a victory from the planners. These slogans and the, the anti-war protests were offering us only two options. Support your country when it was wrong or don't support your country by burning a flag, using profanity, doing act, acts of vandalism, and carrying the Viet Cong flag. Notice that victory was not an option. It was either one or two. The media did its bit in helping the no-victory forces as well. Every time two or more anti-war protesters got together to protest the war, the media was there. But when hundreds of thousands of people marched on Washington demanding a victory, the media was busy covering a bake sale at a local charity. But the most important thing to notice during the entirety of the war was that the government was actually creating the anti-war protest movement. Let me discuss this by using this illustration. There is one thing I know about paychecks. The name on the middle line is the employee, and the name on the bottom line is the boss. I kept getting paychecks during the course of the war. My name was on the middle line, and my boss's name was on the bottom line. And uh, uh, please notice that I I got paid what I was worth. (laughs) And as long as I did what the boss wanted, I kept getting paychecks. The name on the bottom line wanted me to make widgets, and as long as I made widgets, I kept getting paychecks. If I stopped making widgets or went to the front of my building with some of my fellow employees carrying signs like these, I hate the boss, the boss is a pig, and don't buy the boss's product, none of us would get paycheck. During the Vietnamese War, the government universities were getting paychecks in the form of aid to the government schools. The university's name was on the middle line, and the boss's name was on the bottom line. That meant that the boss liked the product being turned out by the universities. They liked the anti-government protesters being produced by the anti-government universities. And they kept giving the universities paychecks all the time they were producing anti-government protesters. That product was students who hated the government. We've all heard the old adage, you get what you paid for. If you don't like the product being turned out by the universities, then don't pay them to turn out the product. As I said, if I didn't make the product my boss wanted, I got fired. But the universities never got fired. That must have meant 
they were doing what the government wanted. And what they were doing was to convince the American people to support the war with only two options. Support the war with no hope of victory or hate the government. And it worked. It prolonged the war with no victory from 1964 to 1975. And that was because victory was not the goal of our government. This protest march that I had observed was northbound on Broadway, one of the main streets of downtown Portland. And one day I found a, a map of Portland, and I discovered one more clue that I was right. The march had originated on the campus of Portland State University at the end of the southern end of Broadway. And then they marched up Broadway right in front of the building I worked in. Portland State, I would presume, was getting federal aid to its schools, at school rather, and it was turning out the product that the government wanted, anti-war, anti-government protesters. Remember, you get what you paid for. Let me ask you this. What sort of reaction would the soldiers in Vietnam have when they see a daily picture in the media of, that, of this that they are told is the typical American response to the war in Vietnam. I think it would lead them to frustration, thinking that if the American people did not support the war, why did the government send them there? I think there would be two words to describe their reaction, disillusion and frustration. And I am saying that this was by actual design of this conspiracy. And all of this happened during the entirety of the war. Because there was another goal of the war itself. So the only conclusion you can draw from all of this evidence is that the United States government committed this nation to a war that they did not want to win, but wanted to prolong. And it succeeded in the deaths of millions of people. The next question to be answered is this one. Why did America fight the war in Vietnam? The real reason we fought the war in Vietnam is drugs. Drugs. The purpose of the war in Vietnam was to create a drug culture in America. And the reason the planters selected Vietnam for this war was because drugs were plentiful in that area of the world. The planters knew that American soldiers would make a good living compared to the Vietnamese and they could buy the low-cost drugs. And the American fighting men would turn to drugs as a way of dealing with their frustration of not being able to win a war that did not make sense. Why did the planters want to create a drug culture in the United States? Simply because communist China needed American dollars to buy American war-making technology. And how are they going to pay for their purchases? By selling the only product they had that was available in large quantities. But America was not a market for this product 
before the war in Vietnam. So in one sentence, the conspirators needed to create a market so we could buy the drugs for Americans and pay for them with American dollars so that communist China could buy war-making technology from America. Let me start by showing you that America started selling technology to communist China around the presidency of Ronald Reagan. By, uh, on June the 12th, 1981, President Ronald Reagan signed a presidential document called Presidential Determination Number 84-11. This is a copy of it. It read in part, I hereby find that the furnishing of defense articles and services to the government of China will strengthen the security of the United States and promote world peace. In 1983, Caspar Weinberger, uh, Secretary of Defense in President Reagan's administration, visited Communist China. That is him on the Great Wall in, of China in the picture to the left. The article headline reads, Most Technology Open, Weinberger Tells China. On January the 15th, 1986, the Los Angeles Times told the American people just what the Chinese were buying in the way of defense articles. Remote-controlled deck guns, gas turbine engines, sonar equipment, and torpedoes. The communist Chinese system cannot feed their people, and we are selling them, we're not selling them, we are not selling them foodstuffs like rice. We're selling them deck guns, and torpedoes. Now the question is, what are they selling us to get dollars to buy this technology? And the answer is heroin. Heroin. This is a map of Congress China that shows the in yellow the 9 million acres where the Chinese grow the poppies that are later processed into the heroin. This map partially explains why the Chinese cannot grow enough feed, enough food to feed their own people. They're taking rich farmland to grow poppies for drug production. To show you just how significant this 9 million acre poppy field is, China has 15 million acres of land on which they grow their rice. Now, the American government has known about this drug cultivation since at least 1960. This is Stanton Cadlin, a drug expert who testified before a committee on the House of Representatives, and he told them, for the first time in human history, the systematic production and distribution of narcotic drugs has become an organized monopoly in Red China. In 10 years, Mao Tse-Sung, at that time the head of the communist government in China, has built up a virtual monopoly in heroin. So our government knew that Communist China was selling heroin to the world as far back as 1961. In fact, they could have known even further back in the past, back to 1956, when Rodney Gilbert in the National Review magazine wrote this. There is no longer any doubt that Red China is by all odds the biggest contributor to the illicit traffic in opium and heroin. 
Mr. Harry Anslinger, the head of the United States Bureau of Narcotics, said this in 1961. The Chinese Communist regime is directly responsible for the supply of at least 65% of the illicit narcotics trade. There is very definite proof that heroin smuggled in from Commerce China is responsible for the rise of narcotic addiction in the United States. This is a picture of President Richard Nixon toasting before they eat a dinner with Chow and Lai, the Chinese foreign minister. This man, along with Mao Tse-Sung, murdered as many as 80 million Chinese in the bloody Chinese Communist Revolution between 1923 and 1949. That was greater than one in ten Chinese. Yet here is America's president about to eat dinner with one of the two greatest mass murderers of all time. Xiao Enlai confirmed that Communist China was in the drug trade in 1965 during the war in Vietnam. This is what he said. The more troops the U.S. sends to Vietnam, the happier we shall be. Some of the American soldiers are trying opium, and we are helping them. We are planning the best kinds of opium, especially for Americans. Notice that he said that their drugs were being grown, especially for the American soldiers in Vietnam. This is a picture of the opium produced in, a commerce, in commerce China that appeared in the U.S. News and World Report of July the 5th, 1993. But here in this picture, rather, the authorities are destroying the drugs. Notice, notice that in this close-up, you will see that the block of opium is stamped with the number 999 on it. But for students of the Bible, when you, when you flip the picture over, it says the number is 666, the number of the beast in the book of Revelation. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? Now, I want to break the train of thought for just a moment and show you a quote that shows just how greedy and immoral those who dealt in this opium and heroin business were. This is Colonel Bogue Wright, a retired American Green Beret officer in Vietnam. He wrote a book entitled Call to Serve, and on page 375, he told his readers this horrendous story. It blew my mind to learn that a group of morticians were concealing their shipments of drugs to the United States in the body cavities of dead American soldiers during the Vietnamese War. I have to admit that that story did not startle me because I knew that this conspiracy was that evil, but it showed me just how merciless these drug dealers were. I agree with Colonel Wrights when he said in his book that this is an unthinkable thought, but this is what we are talking about in our study of the war in Vietnam. Now, let me explain how this drug trade works. The United States sends the money to communist China. And China sends the drugs to the United States. The United States sends the technology to communist China. And the Chinese communists send the American dollars back to the United States to pay for their 
purchase. And both sides are happy with the transaction. And then the process starts all over again. I would now like to show you the evidence that the government of the United States knows that this money is being used to buy drugs from communist China. This is once again Colonel Bogue writes. By the way, just notice that he has a chest full of medals because he was a heavily decorated Vietnam veteran. He has a story to tell that is interesting and extremely pertinent to the story I'm relating during this presentation. In 1989, Colonel Bogreich came to Tucson and spoke to a group that I belonged to. He told us about a trip he took to Burma in 1986 at the specific request of the United States government. He wrote about this trip in his second book entitled, A Nation Betrayed. He reported that President George Bush, the father, had received a report that a man named Kun Sa in Burma had information on three American prisoners of war in the jungles of Burma. And Bo was asked to go into the area to meet with him to discuss how he could bring back these three OWs, three POWs, to America. Bo said that he was told that he learned Kunsa was the head of a five million people called the Shan, and that they lived in a corner of Burma, Vietnam, and Communist China, shown here in the blue loop. These people are not a formal nation because they do not care about national borders. They just live in the jungle. So Bo went to Burma in 1986 and met with Kunsa. This is a picture of them as they met and talked in Kunsa's jungle headquarters. Kunsa told Bo that he had no knowledge about any POWs in his area, but that Bo was free to travel anywhere in his territories, and if he found any POWs, he was free to take them with him. Bo did that, but could find no evidence of any prisoners of war in Kunsa's territory. But Kunsa had something more important that he wanted to tell Bo. He reported that he and the Shan people were in the drug business. He admitted that they started selling drugs in 1950. Kunsa told him that he received the raw poppies grown in Commerce China and then refined them into heroin. They discussed just how much heroin he produced. He told Bo that it was 900 tons in 1986, and later on Bo learned that it was 1,200 tons in 1988, 2,200 tons in 1989, and 3,200 tons in 1991. He told Bo that he sold the heroin for $1,500 a pound. Just how much money would he collect for the sale of 3,200 tons? Obviously, unimaginable amounts of money. Kunsa has a 40,000-man army, and Bo said he considered them to be an excellent one well-trained and equipped. Kunsa admitted that he operated 12 refineries scattered throughout the jungles near the border of Thailand and Burma. But the amazing thing he told Bo was that he wanted to get out of the drug business. He wanted to stop, stop growing, refining, and moving tons of heroin and opium through his area. He wanted the American government to provide the Shan people with another crop or business. He wanted to feed his people with something other than drug money. 
He told Bo that Coonsaw's area is rich in teakwood, rubies, gold, and jade, but that he needed American assistance in marketing any or all of these products. Bo was elated. He wrote, I was certain our government would be excited about Coonsaw's offer. But he said, I couldn't have been more wrong. There was a war against drugs being waged in America to stop the use of drugs by some of the American people. And here was an offer to stop most of the opium and heroin from going into America. Kunsaw told Colonel Greitz that he would be willing to name three buyers of the drugs to assist the United States in knowing that he was sincere in his offer. The first individual he named was Santos Traficani, the mafia chief of Miami, Florida. You might expect the mafia to be involved in the drug business, so this name came as no surprise to me. But the next two names shocked me. The second name was Theodore Shackley, CIA Deputy Director for Covert Operations. The CIA was buying drugs in collusion with the mafia. And the third name was Richard Armitage, Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Kunsaw was saying that the American government and the mafia were partners in the drug business. Bo brought home a total of 44 hours of tape interviews with Kunsaw and his assistants and the papers signed by them indicating that they wanted out of the drug business. He turned these papers and tapes over to the United States government and to the Congress in December of 1986. He was told by Tom Harvey, the National Security Administration staff assistant, that there is no interest here in doing that, meaning that the American government had no interest in stopping the importation of heroin drugs into this country. But that was expected. Kuhn saw, warned Bo, that George Bush, meaning the father, is not likely to support our plan because too many of his associates were involved in the drug business. Now let's see if that statement is true. Where was George Bush from January 1976 to January 1977? He was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. But you say that he did not know that the CIA was buying drugs. When Casper Weinberger left the Secretary of Defense at the end of the Reagan administration, he was quoted as saying, if you don't know what is going on in your department, you shouldn't be in charge. And to show you that George Bush should have known, U.S. News and War Report called him one of the best directors the CIA ever had. That means he must have known. Good directors know what their departments are doing, and George Bush was one of the best. In fact, George Bush has had a long association with the CIA. According to this article, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, said that George Bush worked for the CIA since 1963. Now, where was George Bush before he's director of the CIA? From October of 1974 to January of 1976, a total of 16 months, he was America's envoy 
to China, meaning he was the number one representative of our government in that nation. Notice that he was not called our ambassador because the United States had not officially recognized the communist Chinese government as yet. But notice that he was America's number one representative in the country that was selling the drugs being brought into the United States. But I am certain that he did not know that China was growing 9 million acres of poppies. I'm certain that not one person in China told him, nor did he ever hear one tiny rumor of that fact. I would now like to show you two pictures of George Bush and his wife Barbara taken while they were in China. This picture was taken in Tiananmen Square, where years later thousands of Chinese students would protest the lack of personal freedom in China, and some would be crushed by the Communist Chinese Army. Notice two things. First, they were riding bicycles because there are few private automobiles in China. This appears to be an attempt to show the Chinese people that the new envoy and his wife were simple country people. But more importantly, notice the strategic placing of the photograph of Mao Tse-sung between the two of them. That picture is nearly centered as if they wanted the portrait in their picture. Mao was one of the two greatest mass murders in the history of the world, and the Bushes just happened to get his picture centered in their photograph. Now, I am certain that you are saying that this is just a coincidence. And I'm making too much out of a picture of Mao being centered between the two Bushes, because you're saying it's just a coincidence. They just stopped to have their picture taken in a famous square in China, and it just so happened to be taken with Mao in the middle of it. Then how do you explain this picture taken just a few minutes later from another position, probably 100 feet or more away? Notice that the picture of Mao is still between the two bushes. Yes, I know, both pictures were taken, and it just so happened that Mao's picture was in the center. But it is possible that they were doing this to show that they truly admired this man as being a great figure in Chinese history, the murderer of 80 million Chinese. Please write to me with your opinion as to why the Bushes had two pictures taken of them with this butcher in their picture. I'd love to hear your views. But it is possible that they did it for exactly this reason. When Mao died in September of 1976, President Gerald Ford said, Mao was a great figure in modern Chinese history. The president, for some reason, failed to mention that Mao was indeed the great murderer of 80 million Chinese. Former President Richard Nixon described Mao as a unique man in a generation of great revolutionary leaders. I guess that Nixon feels that unique men murder 80 million people. The New York Times of September 10, 1976, called Chairman Mao a statesman and, above all, a moralist. Apparently, the murder of 80 million people is the act of a great moralist. David Rockefeller, long a supporter of leftist causes, said this after he made a visit to China in 1973. Whatever the price of the Chinese Revolution... 80 million dead. 
It has obviously succeeded not only in producing a more efficient and dedicated administration, but in also fostering high morale and community of interest. So it is certainly conceivable that George Bush agreed with these sources that Mao was a great human being and posed for these pictures knowing that the portrait of this great human being, this moralist, was centered in these pictures. Uh, by the way, you might remember this photograph as being one that I suggested you remember for a reason that I would discuss later. Is it possible that Bill Clinton was using this photograph of a way, as a way of saying that he respected Ho Chi Minh, who's shown in that uh, portrait or that uh, statue behind him, like these men respected Mao Tse-sung? It could quite possibly put a whole different light on Clinton's picture, maybe. However, to be fair to the New York Times, they quoted a young Chinese on the island of Taiwan off the Chinese coast when he said this, Mao was a monster, not a human being. And that he, this young man, mourned for all the lives he took, all the suffering he caused the Chinese people. I will let you decide which of these comments said it best. I would like to return to the story of Colonel Bogue Wrights and his discovery of the Chinese drug connection. When he returned to the United States after his second trip to Burma to meet with Kun Sa, he was arrested by the United States government for a misuse of a passport. Bo was found innocent after a jury trial. William Maddox, the U.S. attorney who prosecuted Bo, was interviewed by the local press on April the 21st, 1989, after the trial. Bo had copied this interview on his video that he sells, and you can watch him say this yourself. Uh, yourself. You watch the video. Mr. Maddox says, George Bush called me and told me to get Bo Greitz. A few days after Mr. Maddox gave this public interview, he was fired by the U.S. government. I don't mean to laugh, Mr. Maddox. I'm sorry. Was this prosecution or persecution? Does this sound like justice or vengeance? It has to be vengeance against both Colonel Greitz and Mr. Maddox because both of these men knew that the American government was buying drugs from the communist government in China and that this American war on drugs is a farce. On March the 16th, 1990, the United States government indicted Kun Saw. They called him the leading drug trafficker in Southeast Asia, but the government admitted that they could not arrest him because of his 40,000-man army. So it appears that they could not get Kun Sa to stop his drug trafficking activities. However, the government did go after another major drug dealer in the world, Manuel Noriega of the, United, of the nation of Panama. It has been estimated that at the time he was arrested, 75% of all the world's cocaine came from Colombia and went through the nation of Panama. He was charged on February the 5th, 1988, with drug smuggling, amongst other charges, and found guilty in eight, on eight of those ten counts. But Noriega made the claim that he had worked for the CIA of the United States. The headline reads, 
CIA wanted drugs, guns to flow, Noriega says. This August 23, 1991, Pittsburgh Press newspaper reported that Noriega says he had good reason for allowing drugs and guns to slip through Panama. The last seven, seven, the last seven CIA directors, including George Bush, the father, asked him to help with the drugs. In August of 1988, President Ronald Reagan ordered the State Department, the Defense Department, and the Central Intelligence Agency not to cooperate with the congressional investigation of possible illegal activities of General Manuel Noriega of Panama. He also reported that the investigation could touch on politically sensitive matters, such as when George Bush, the father, learned that Noriega might be involved in drug trafficking. And on February the 19th, 1992, the Star reported that George Bush's chief of staff testified that Bush knew about Noriega's drug laundering operations in 1983, far earlier than the president has acknowledged. On February the 20th, 1992, the Star reported that George Bush kept Noriega on the CIA payroll in the 1970s when he directed the agency and met with him personally. But Bush has said that he knew nothing of Noriega's alleged drug dealings until shortly before February of 1988. But on page 60 of his book entitled A Nation Betrayed, Bogue Rice reports that he first had information about Noriega's drug dealings while he, meaning Bo, was stationed in Panama in 1976. Bo wrote, I was commanding special forces in Latin America, and we had information that Noriega was a drug smuggler. Noriega was directly responsible for massive amounts of illegal drugs being funneled through Panama into the United States. We reported this through our intelligence sources. Bo reported that just a short time after he sent this information up the chain of command through his intelligence connections, a general came to him in Panama and told him, you must keep your hands completely off of Noriega. He has immense value at the highest levels. Bo stated George Bush was head of the CIA at the time, meaning he had immense value to George Bush the highest level of the CIA. And Bo went on, I could not understand how or why we would allow a conduit for drugs into America to continue. Let me summarize what we've just learned. Bo Greitz knew that Noriega was on the CIA payroll while he was a major drug dealer. And he was told that Noriega had immense value at the highest level, and he was told this in 1976. So if all of these articles are correct, these five presidents are the biggest drug dealers in the world. George Bush, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, and Richard Nixon. This so-called war on drugs is a fraud. End of Section 3. Please hold for Section 4. Section 4. I would like to continue my discussion of Colonel Bogreich's knowledge of the drug-running activities of Manuel Noriega. 
Let's examine the knowledge of President George Bush to see if we can find some evidence that he knew that the American government was paying Manuel Noriega to be a cocaine dealer in Panama. Let's ask the question, did George Bush personally know Noriega? This is a picture of them taken in 1983, and it shows George Bush sitting just a few feet away from Manuel Noriega. Please notice that the year of this meeting was 1983. This is another picture of George Bush while he was vice president. The caption says that George Bush had known of no evidence that General Noriega was involved in drug trafficking before the Panamanian's indictment in February of 1988. Quote, however, administration sources, officials say Bush was informed three years ago of the general's drug ties. So apparently George Bush wants us to believe that he and Noriega met to talk about their mutual love of hamburgers. Notice Colonel Wrights told us that Noriega had immense value at the highest level and that he told that to the Army Intelligence in 1976. And George Bush was Vice President of the United States in 1983. Would you not agree with me that that is in the highest level? Wikipedia on the Internet tells us that, quote, during his tenure as Vice President, Bush headed administration task forces on fighting drug abuse, end quote. So the question is, when did George Bush learn of Noriega's drug dealings? Was it 1988, 85, 83, or 1976? But more importantly, why would he deny it? This is a very strange, a very strange photograph indeed. Notice what George Bush has said. I was in China, but I didn't know they were in the drug business. I was head of the CIA, but I didn't know that Noriega and the Red Chinese were in the drug business. I knew Manuel Noriega, but I didn't know he was in the drug business. I was head of President Reagan's drug eradication program while well, I was vice president, but I didn't know Communist China and Panama were in the drug business. Yet this man became the president of the United States. All of the evidence presented so far says that the United States government is the biggest drug dealer in the world. And George Bush doesn't know that. I would now like to return to this nation's war on drugs and how it affects our present and also our future. This drug war in the United States is very selective. Our government arrests one drug dealer, but not another. It makes deals with one drug dealer, but not another. On July the 18th, 1989, the USA Today newspaper reported that drugs are William Bennett proposed that the American government link foreign aid to Colombia, a major source of the cocaine that comes into the United States, to new drug eradication programs, including incentives to introduce peasant farmers to new crops. Notice Colombia drug dealers were to get a drug eradication programs, but the growers of the poppies that become heroin produced by the Shan government of Kunsa do not. The drug Growers of Columbia who produce cocaine did not want out of the drug business, but our drug eradication program forced them out. And we can then 
give them a crop substitution program. Kuhn Saw says that the Sean people who produce heroin want out of the drug business voluntarily, and we cannot provide them with a drug or crop substitution program. This is a very strange war on drugs, and we must ask the question, why? And here is the answer. The government of the United States was shutting down the cocaine drug trade through Colombia and Panama and increasing the drug trade in heroin. Why? To make heroin the drug of choice in America. The government's war on drugs was replacing cocaine with the preferred drug heroin. And I started saying this back in the mid-1980s. And that poses a second question. Why was heroin the drug of choice? And the answer is to keep the dollars flowing into communist China. Finally, on June the 19th, 1991, the Tucson Citizen newspaper reported heroin making comeback, low prices, large supply, spur sales. So drug users were using heroin instead of cocaine. And I repeat, the end result is more dollars to communist China. Now, let me show you that our government knew that America was buying drugs from Kun Sa, who was processing the poppies into heroin for the Chinese communists. On January the 18th, 1989, President Ronald Reagan awarded about 25 people a Citizens Award for their service to the country. The name in the middle on the right is... Richard Armitage, the purchaser of drugs from Kunsaw. President Ronald Reagan gave Mr. Armitage a medal for his service to this country in being a drug dealer. Later, on February the 27th, 1989, President George Bush named Richard Armitage as a Secretary of State for Four East, excuse me, for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. You do a great job in service for your country, and you receive a medal, and then get a promotion, even if you are a drug dealer. I would next like to tell you another story, but I must admit that I have no way of checking it out. I have no intelligence gathering network to confirm this story, but I did meet with this individual and talk to him and ask the pertinent questions. And I am convinced that what he told me is true, for the simple reason it fits all of the material I've been able to check out. So I will just report the story as he related to me, and I will not name this individual to protect his privacy. In 1989, when Bogreitz came to Tucson to speak to the club I was a member of, a young man in his combat fatigue from his days in the American Air Force came and told me, uh, stood beside me at the back of the room. After Bo had concluded his remarks, this young man said rather loudly, Bo, I can confirm what you've been telling these people today about America being in the drug business in Southeast Asia. He went on, I worked at the U Tapau Airfield in Thailand between 1966 and 1974. First as an employee of a CIA front corporation and then as a member of the Air Force. 
For eight years, I loaded the heroin off of the mules that came from Kunsaw and loaded it onto Air America airplanes for shipment to the United States. Now, this is Ralph here. I, I never heard of the Air America Airlines in 1989. But later in 1991, I took this photograph of two of the airplanes in Tucson waiting apparently for some reconditioning work uh, here in Tucson. Notice that the words on the side do not say American Airlines. They say Air America. Here is some additional evidence that he might be telling the truth. This is a movie entitled Air America that was produced in August of 1990 starring Mel Gibson. The headline reads in its entirety, Air America crashes in with a nasty emptiness, meaning the reviewer didn't like the movie. The review of the movie said this, they, meaning Air America, transport heroin to finance the CIA's operations. So I asked this young man if he would mind telling me the rest of his story, and he agreed, so he met privately later that afternoon. He told me that in about 1970, he and his fellow Americans working there were told that an American congressman had landed in one of Air America's airplanes, and they went over to see who it was. The congressman was in the co-pilot seat and was George Herbert Walker Bush, a future president of the United States. It is known that Congressman Bush was a pilot during World War II. The young man's recollection of the date of this visit in 1970 could be correct because the Wikipedia Encyclopedia on the Internet says that George Bush was a congressman from January the 3rd of 1967 to January the 3rd of 1971. He said that he and some other Americans working at the airfield had lunch with the congressman. I asked him if he believed that Congressman Bush knew that they were loading heroin into an Air America airplane just beside the one he landed at, and his answer was, there is no question in my mind that he knew. In fact, we loaded his airplane before he took off to fly back to America. So now we know that President George Bush knew all about America being directly involved in the drug business since at least he was a congressman back in 1970. Let me now bring you one more story that seems to confirm all of what these people are saying about our involvement in Vietnam. In 1990, I gave a version of this speech in Long Beach, California. After I concluded my remarks, a man in the audience stood up and said he could confirm some of the details mentioned in my lecture. He said that one of his best friends, a major in the United States Army, came back from Vietnam and told him that part of his job during the war was to take American money to Burma and to give it to the drug sellers. Once again, you will have to decide for yourself about the truth of all of these stories as a jury member. This is another newspaper article that adds more evidence to that which I've already accumulated in all of my research. It is a story that appeared in the September 4, 1991 Green Valley News and Sun newspaper in Green Valley, Arizona, a city south of Tucson. It described the speech that retired Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Robinson gave in which he described the activities during a part of the Vietnam War. 
He was the military advisor to the Lao fighting forces fighting in the Vietnamese War. The headline reads, Robinson shares his insights on secret war in Laos. It quoted the colonel as saying, the chief of staff of the Lao Army was authorized by the U.S. to conduct a drug trade during his time there. So once again, we see that drugs played an important part in the Vietnamese War. Next, I would like to return to the story about Khun Saw and his involvement in the drug trade. Are there any evidences that Khun Saw was in, involved in providing drugs for the American government? Was he involved? Let's look at some evidence. And this article will provide some of that additional evidence. In the 1960s, the CIA adopted Khun Saw. To ensure his loyalty, CIA operatives allowed the tribes to transport their opium, and I'm putting in there in heroin as well as you'll see, to South Vietnam, where 20,000 GIs became heroin addicts by the early 1970s. Let me read that again. In the 1960s, the CIA adopted Khun Saw. To ensure his loyalty, CIA operatives allowed the tribes to transport their opium and heroin to South Vietnam, where 20,000 GIs became heroin addicts by the early 1970s. So here we learn that heroin was not only going to America to create a drug culture, some of it was going to South Vietnam to get some of the American fighting men addicted to heroin and or opium. In other words, and I repeat myself, the war on drugs is a fraud. Now it is time to tell what I consider to be the most important part of this entire war scenario in Vietnam. I would like you to know that I personally believe this story to be true as well. I first read about it in a newsletter I read years ago, and I called the person named in the story, and we talked over the phone for about an hour. I asked him if he would permit me to tape the conversation, and he consented. I've used this tape and all of the other writings of his other writings on the subject to detail what I'm about to relay to you now. Because this is a story of how one man who got the support of two more individuals, one man and these two ended the war in Vietnam years before it was supposed to end. I'd like to remind you once again, please be a member of a jury and be open. Please hear all of what I'm about to tell you before you decide whether or not this man's story is true. Here are the brief details of what he told me. It was known that at least 80% of the war-making technology entered North Vietnam through one port, the port of Haiphong. As you can see, the port is near the Gulf of Tonkin and is the only port in this nation deep enough to allow ocean-going vessels to enter the area and unload their cargo. This is an article that shows just how important the, part, the port is. It says that there were 36 ships in the harbor at one time, meaning this must have been a huge port well capable of handling huge cargoes of war-making technology. This is the small map of North Vietnam, 
again showing the city of Haiphong in the lower right. The blue line leading off into the northwest is called the Red River, and it is called this because it is very muddy, carrying tons of mud into the port each day. The North Vietnamese have purchased a dredge that operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, removing the mud which clogs the port. This is an actual photograph of the dredge, and I will tell you how I know that a little later. Now, any general who wants to win a war knows that the way to win is by cutting off the supplies of your enemy. And when you know that 80% of the enemy supplies come through one port and that this port has a dredge to keep the port open, it would follow that it is imperative to sink the dredge to allow the port to silt up and the enemy then would have no way of getting the supplies necessary to kill American fighting forces. You could end this war by silting up the harbor of Haiphong, but this never happened. The American government made no attempt to sink the dredge. These are the Pentagon Papers, which were commissioned by Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara in 1967 and were made public in 1971. They were released by Daniel Ellsberg, a top military analyst who became disillusioned with the Pentagon's war policy. They were classified top secret at the time, and Anthony Russo assisted in their release. This article discusses his action and was published upon his death. They report that the planners started talking about the mining or the blockading of the Port of Haiphong in 1954, about the time that President Eisenhower sent military advisors into South Vietnam. This is page 445, and it says that the closure of Haiphong was not acceptable because they concluded that the closure of the port was bound to risk a confrontation with communist Russia. See, if we get them mad, they would send war-making technology to the enemy, and then they would send missiles and soldiers into the war with instructions to fire at American airplanes. And, and, and we certainly don't want that to happen, even though it did. And we didn't blockade the port of Haiphong. In 2002, I met a retired Navy officer who was a medical doctor assigned to the Ticonderoga aircraft carrier. He reported to me that he observed that the pilots on board were being trained to drop mines in the harbor of Haiphong. He said this was sometime between 1963 and 1965, just around the time that Lyndon Johnson lied to us about the Gulf of Tonkin incident. But there were some who decided to close the port, and then the war would come to a hasty conclusion. In March of 1968, Science and Mechanics magazine interviewed nine top retired military officers in all three branches of the military. And they unanimously concluded the war can be won in six weeks. They concluded that there were four things to do to win the war. Number one, officially declare war on North Vietnam. This would commit the entire resources of the United States to a victory. 
the United States never declared war against North Vietnam. Number two, destroy all targets of consequence. As we've already seen, this was certainly not being done during the war. Number three, warn communist China and communist Russia to halt all shipments of war supplies to North Vietnam. And as we've already seen, this also was never done. And number four, close the port of Haiphong. And this wasn't done either. These retired military officers knew that the way to win any war was to cut off the supplies of the enemy. And in the case of the Vietnam War, that port was Haiphong. Apparently, only retired military officers are able to figure that out. Civilian policy planners cannot be expected to think of these very, very complex solutions on their own. And notice this. If you close the port of Haiphong, you wouldn't have to do the other three things. The war would be over. So the solution to a war is simply you win a war by winning it. You do those things that will give your troops a victory at the lowest possible cost in human life. And the way to do this in the Vietnam War was to sink one dredge. But some military, military officers on active duty did figure it out. Admiral U.S. Grant Sharp, the commander of the Pacific Fleet, said, we should have closed the harbor of Haiphong. This was a great mistake, of course, and immeasurably increased the casualties that our side suffered. The failure to close the port killed American fighting forces. These are harsh words, but they are extremely accurate. In 1968, General Wheeler, a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, submitted a bombing policy paper. Senator Barry Goldwater reported on what that paper said. General Wheeler would favor action to close the port of Haiphong. Then Goldwater told us why President Johnson did not carry out General Wheeler's recommendation. The general had received word that closing the port was not an option or an action Johnson was going to consider. And this becomes the question. Why did Johnson not close the port? And the answer is, as I've been saying during this presentation, because victory was not an option in the war. We were not in this war to win it. In a book about Air Force General Curtis LeMay, entitled Iron Eagle, the author tells us what General LeMay would have done to win the war. He would have mined the harbor of Haiphong. Now, the next question must be this one. Why didn't these top military officers not do this while they were on active duty during the war? They had the power. The armed forces know that when admirals and generals speak, others obey. But most people do not know that generals and admirals take orders as well. Article 2, Section 2 says, The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. That means that the President issues orders to admirals and generals. And they know 
that they had best obey them. Presidents and not generals or admirals are the ones who decide to sink dredges. And who were the commanders-in-chief during the war? There were two, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. Finally, on May the 8th, 1972, President Nixon took steps to end the war. He went on nationwide television and told the American people, there is only one way to stop the killing, and that is to keep the weapons out of North Vietnam. And how did Nixon propose to keep the weapons out of North Vietnam? He announced plans to drop mines into the port of Haiphong. But notice there is an even bigger question to ask. Why did it take him nearly four years to take this action? Why in 1972 and not in 1971? 1970 or 1969 when he was inaugurated as president. And notice this, President Nixon did not seem too concerned that this action would provoke a nuclear confrontation with communist Russia. And if he should have been, nothing happened. The Soviet Union did not increase their involvement in the war because he closed down the port, and they didn't threaten us with a nuclear war. Remember that this was the reason that the government planners had issued the rules of engagement and had not closed the port before 1972. So Nixon then warned, warned, Nixon warned the nations with ships in the port that they had four days to get their ships out of the port before he dropped the mines. Which nations did he notify? Why, of course, the two nations of Communist Russia and then Communist China because they had ships in the harbor. For instance, here's a photograph of a Russian ship unloading materials, in this case trucks, in the Haiphong Harbor, for example. And then he notified all of the other communist nations who were aiding communist North Vietnam in the war by carrying war-making goods into North Vietnam. This war was very simple. It was a war between the communist nations against the capitalist nations of the United States and its allies. So these other nations had chosen up sides and had sided with their fellow communist nations. So Nixon sent notice to these communist nations to get their ships out of the port. They had four days. The communist nations were England, Japan, Greece, Norway, Italy, and West Germany. These nations were the other communist nations who had decided to support the war effort of their fellow communist nations instead of the United States. This is a list of some of those nations and the names of the ships that were being used to ship goods to kill Americans. This, for instance, is the list of the 15 Norwegian ships which visited Haiphong to unload goods to kill Americans. But these nations were not our enemy. They were our ally. Who needs enemies when you have friends like these? Now, there was one more communist nation that had a ship in the port of Haiphong, and President Nixon had to warn this nation as well. One more communist nation supporting the enemy in 
killing Americans. That nation was the communist nation of the United States. You might remember that we discussed Professor Sutton when he studied when we studied America's military aid to the Soviet Union. As part of that research, he looked into all of the Russian ships sailing into the port of Haiphong during the Vietnamese War. He identified over 100 of their ships, including five Liberty ships that had been lent to Communist Russia during World War II that had ended about 19 years before. This is a photograph that some that shows rather photograph that shows one of the last Liberty ships somewhere on the Sacramento River in California in a mothball fleet being kept so that it could be used again in a war emergency. The United States built hundreds of these ships to a common plan to quickly get ships into the water to carry goods to our troops in World War II. But the United States lent Russia 121 merchant vessels, presumably Liberty ships. The program was called Land Lease. These ships were not gifts. They were either lent or leased to the communist nation of Russia, which means that these ships were flying the Russian flag and were being used to carry goods into Haiphong to kill Americans. And they still legally belong to the United States. I can remember reading about some people who were warning the American government about this Lend-Lease program during World War II that it could come back to haunt the American people. And here's some evidence that it did come back to us a few years later. By the way, should you wish to see a list of the goods that this $11 billion Lend-Lease program sent Russia, you can on pages 83 to 108 in this book entitled From Major Jordan's Diaries. But during World War II, the communist nation of Russia was our ally. How could we have known that it would turn against us in the Vietnamese War? And the answer is simple. They are a communist nation, and communist nations are out to destroy the capitalist system. So they were doing what they were expected to do, and that was kill American soldiers. So on May the 8th, 1972, Richard Nixon announced the plans to end the war in Vietnam. The bloody war was coming to an end. But it is an interesting question as to why he chose that particular day. Because it was not Nixon who ended the war. Neither was it Henry Kissinger. Neither was it Congress. Neither was it the media, neither was it the anti-war protesters. One man did, and this is that man, Nord Davis of Topton, North Carolina. Mr. Davis learned about the dredge in the port of Haiphong in 1971 and decided it was the key to a victory in Vietnam. He decided to conduct a private war against the dredge since the government would not do so. He decided to sink the dredge and end the war in Vietnam. He raised $100,000 and offered it as a payment to any American pilot who would sink the dredge himself. He printed up thousands of these flyers and had them delivered to American and uh, American Air Force bases in Vietnam. 
It told the pilot that if he would sink the dredge and then be able to prove it with photographs, he would receive the $100,000 in cash. Mr. Davis said that hundreds of pilots called him for further information. And he told me that he told them that all of them could end the war and that they could go home earlier if they would sink it. And the typical response was that the port of Haiphong and the dredge were not on the approved target list. And in fact, it was specifically off limits to fly over. And if he sank the dredge, he would violate the rules of engagement. And if he did that, he would be subject to a court-martial. And if he was court-martial, he would lose his pension. And then if he lost his pension, he would have no future. And Mr. Davis would then explain that if you sank the dredge, it would end the war, and countless lives of American fighting men would be saved. And maybe one of those lives saved would be yours. And hundreds of pilots stated that it was not enough money. And I find this response to be absolutely incredible. These pilots refused to do what was right after they learned what the solution to the war was. Finally, on December of 1971, a retired Army colonel named Granville Rideout called Mr. Davis and asked if he would get the money if he sank the dredge. Colonel Rideout was a retired Vietnam veteran who spoke Vietnamese, and he could get into Haiphong and do as requested. Mr. Davis asked him how he would sink the dredge, and he explained that he would swim out to the dredge and plant timed explosives that would sink it after he swam away. Mr. Davis said that he would gladly give him the $100,000 if he could prove that he sank the dredge. So Colonel Rideout went to Haiphong and took this photograph of the actual dredge. He saw that this dredge was huge and became suspicious that one man could not carry enough explosives to affect a sinking. So he returned to the United States and did a little research on the very vessel itself. He found out that it was one of three, all of equal size, made by a company in Singapore. One of these dredges was in place in the port of Singapore, and the other one was in So the colonel went to Singapore and met with the builders of the three dredges to learn more about the dredge itself. He told them he was a Florida land developer and that he needed a similar dredge to open up a harbor for a marina he wanted to build. The builders brought out the plans for the dredge and laid them on a table. Colonel Rideout learned that the dredge had eight watertight compartments and that one man could not sink the dredge by He returned to North Carolina and told Mr. Davis what he had learned. Rideout then explained that the only way it could be sunk was by bombing. Nord Davis explained that he had tried that approach and that no American pilot was willing to assume the task of sinking the dredge. The colonel then told Mr. Davis that he knew where two B-25 attack bombers were sitting in some airport in Thailand. The B-25 was a World War II low-level bomber, meaning it could be flown low to the ground to avoid radar detection. These two airplanes had been given to Thailand by the government of the United States to assist them in some sort of drug war and that he thought they could be purchased on auction. The colonel went to the Thai government and purchased each of the two planes for $500 apiece. So Nord Davis and the colonel now owned an Air Force. The two of them worked out 
The details of the attack, the plans call for the two planes, one after the other, to fly on the route shown on this map. The planes would leave Thailand on the left, fly due east across Laos into the Gulf of Tonkin, and then fly north and then northwest into the port. Each bomber would make one pass and hope that one or both could sink the dredge. They knew that they couldn't keep their planes staying around and keep flying around, making repeated bombing runs until they sank it. So they decided that each airplane would have to carry one bomb each, capable of sinking it by itself. The, plane, the plan further stated that the second plane would take off 45 minutes after the first, unless the first had sunk the dredge. They planned on making the run between the 1st and 7th of May, 1972, because there would be a quarter moon out and that its light would assist the low-level bombers in seeing the target. They discovered that the United States Air Force did have a bomb that could be capable of sinking the dredge by itself, and it was called a 500-pound bomb. The colonel said that he knew a retired Marine Corps general named Pedro Del Valle, and that he might be able to assist them in getting the two 500-pound bombs to the airport in Thailand. He then called the general and explained the plan to him. The general said he would assist by seeing if he could obtain the bombs by calling generals in the Air Force in Vietnam who were friends of his, and he did. But all of the generals turned General Del Valle down because they said that they could not transport bombs to an airport in a neutral nation. It was about this time that they learned that even if they could get the bombs, the doors of the bomb bay of the B-25 that would have to be opened to drop the bombs were too small to allow the passage of the bombs to the target, and that the planes would need to be widened, and that would have to be done on each plane. They were this close, and they could not complete the job. And then General Del Valle said that they should bluff the government by claiming that they would sink the dredge, they meaning Nord Davis, the colonel and the general, if the U.S. did not, and then hoped that this would force the United States into sinking it. General Del Valle said that he knew Admiral John McCain, the father of Arizona Senator John McCain, who was the commander of all of the naval forces in the Pacific Fleet. Del Valle wrote a letter asking the admiral to meet with Colonel Rideout as a personal favor to him. And on February, I'm sorry, April the 28th, 1972, Rideout flew to Hawaii where Admiral McCain was headquartered and met with his aide. Mr. Davis told me that the Admiral did not meet directly with the Colonel so that he could deny, presumably, that he had ever talked to the Colonel if this story had become public. Colonel Rideout told the aide that if they knew about the dredge in the port of Haiphong, and that if the United States Air Force did not sink it by May the 7th, 1972, they had the ability to do it themselves. And if they sunk the dredge, they would go public with the information that the U.S. government would not sink it and that it took three American citizens to do the job, and that would not look good to the Air Force or the Navy or good to the American people. Colonel Rideout returned to the United States and met with Mr. Davis and General Del Valle. Nord told him that he had friends in the Pentagon 
and that Admiral McCain called Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and relayed what he had been told. He then explained that he, meaning Nord Davis, he was told that Mr. Kissinger had obtained the colonel's army records and discovered that the colonel was highly recommended as an officer who did what he said he was do, would do. So Kissinger apparently believed that there must be truth to his claim that he and the others would sink the dredge if the United States government did not do so. And he must have told President Nixon. And as I said, on May the 8th, 1972, President Nixon announced plans to drop mines into the harbor of Haiphong to effectively end that war. He went on national television and told the American people he was doing this to end the killing of the war. Nord sent me a newsletter entitled The Reaper, printed by an Air Force pilot stationed at Colorado Springs, Colorado, who told him that on May the 8th, 1972, when President Nixon announced the plans on dropping the mines into the port of Haiphong, the pilot said that the Air Force went to DEFCON 3, an increase in force readiness above normal. That response reportedly included a 24-hour alert on the Air Force to watch for any planes flying into the area of Haiphong. They were further ordered to shoot down any unauthorized plane in that vicinity. Notice that May the 8th in Haiphong may very well be May the 7th in Washington, D.C. So if all of this is true, they were meeting the deadline of Nord Davis, Colonel Rideout, and General Del Valle. So it was this one man, with the assistance of two retired military officers, ended the war. And that man was Nord Davis from Topton, North Carolina. And America owns this very courageous and innovative American patriot an enormous debt of gratitude. Because he ended a war that probably was planned by the American government to go on for many years after this event. He had saved the lives of countless people in the area. So the bloody war was coming to an end. And on January the 23rd, 1973, the armistice was signed. Let me put all of this together with this article that appeared in the November 14, 1990, Willits, California, newspaper. The Vietnam War was one big lie, declared George Dorner, who spent 32 months in Vietnam. Dorner said that the shots that were supposed to be fired at American ships in the Gulf of Tonkin never happened. Dorner added, they got us in with a lie. They kept us there with lies. They lied to us when we got out. Mr. Dorner has figured it out. Mr. Dorner is right. I have been providing evidence that the American, to the American people since at least 1992, that certain members of the American government intentionally and knowingly murdered 58,000 American fighting men and women in Vietnam and countless others from Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia. And that is what I call premeditated murder. One of the few who dared question the motives of those who planned and then carried out the war was General Robert Scott, who was quoted as saying, Nowhere 
in all of history can a parallel be found where a nation has subsidized its own mortal enemies. It cannot be all accidental. And may I add that it wasn't all accidental. This was a deliberate policy of those who did not want to win a war that they had planned back around the end of World War II. A war that they had planned to create a drug culture in America so that dollars could be sent to Congress China to buy American war-making technology. Now, what is the solution? The Constitution of the United States reads in Article 3, Section 3, Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or, please notice, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Notice that there are two ways to commit an act of treason, levying war against the United States or in giving aid and comfort to our enemies. Therefore, treason can mean giving aid and comfort to the enemy in Vietnam. Notice that the Founding Fathers carefully defined the word, and certain people have tried, have been tried, certain people have been tried and convicted for giving aid to Russia even after World War II was over. On March the 6th, 1951, a married couple named Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were charged with transferring secret information to Communist Russia on the construction of the atomic bomb. They were found guilty and executed on June the 19th, 1953. When their sentences were read to them, Judge Irving Kaufman told the Rosenbergs, I consider your crime worse than murder. By your betrayal, you undoubtedly have altered the course of history to the disadvantage of our country. Millions of innocent people may pay the price of your treason. Notice that the judge called the passing of secrets on the atomic bomb a betrayal and treason. But the interesting thing about that trial and conviction is that it was not just the Rosenbergs who gave secrets about the atomic bomb to Communist Russia. This is a book written in 1980 by James Roosevelt, the second son of President Franklin Roosevelt. It is entitled A Family Matter. James was a major in the Army during World War II, and he was offered, ordered by his father, the commander-in-chief of all armed forces to turn over the plans, equipment, and the necessary components, including uranium, of an atomic bomb to Communist Russia in 1942. And James did as he was ordered. Now the question becomes, when were Franklin and his son James Roosevelt tried for treason and found guilty and executed? And your answer would be, Never, never, never. So certain politicians and military officers can get away with the betrayal of America and not be guilty of treason. Because America was not at war 
with communist Russia at the time. But neither were we when the Rosenbergs did the same thing. So both of these crimes were committed and found to be treason under the second definition of treason, giving aid and comfort to the enemy. On May the 15th, 1985, James Harper was tried and found guilty of selling missile secrets to communist agents. We were not at war with any communist nation in 1985. The judge called him a traitor and sentenced him to life and recommended he never be paroled. Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes on March the 25th, 1990, called the sale of secrets to the Soviet Union by John Walker, another who sold secrets to the Soviet Union. Treason, treason, treason. Now, why is it wrong for the Rosenbergs and right for James and Franklin Roosevelt? Why is it wrong for James Harper and right for President Johnson's Presidents Johnson and Nixon. Why is it wrong for John Walker and right for the Congress of the United States? Simply stated, it is not right for anyone. It is not right for these individuals. It is not right for presidents. It is not right for Congress. Giving aid and comfort to Congress Russia during any time is defined by the Constitution as treason. Crime of treason can be prosecuted, and if the individuals are found guilty, they can be imprisoned. We can try congressmen, senators, businessmen, and members of the media who are still alive for the same crime we tried the Rosenbergs, James Harper, and John Walker for. Now, the next comment should explain exactly why these planners could sacrifice the lives of Americans in events that they had planned. They considered their goal to be of worldwide importance, and in their minds, this goal was worthy of the effort. So these people obviously believe in this philosophy, the end justifies the means. That means that if the goal is deemed to be worthwhile, any means to that goal becomes acceptable. Now, most religions take a contrary approach. The means used to reach the goal must be moral. Nikolai Lenin, the communist leader of the Russian Revolution in 1917, stated it this way. We do not believe in eternal morality, such as thou shalt not murder. That is moral. That serves the destruction of the old society. It is obvious that these planners believe the same thing. If you were president of the United States and believe this, you could sink the Lusitania, plan Pearl Harbor, and stage a fake Gulf of Tonkin event to get to your goal. Yes, there are people who believe this. And some are in our government. Now, just before I close the discussion, I would like to make one additional point. We have examined the evidence that at least three times in America's past, we have been the subject of attacks on our citizens and military forces. We have explained, we have examined rather, we have examined the evidence that our government planned each of these attacks in advance 
and the purpose was to provoke us into a willingness to enter into a state of war against other nations. These three attacks were, of course, the Lusitania, Pearl Harbor, and the Gulf of Tonkin. I provided you with the evidence that our government had actively planned each of these attacks. Now, I would like to say something about the September 11, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center. Because it is my opinion and conclusion that this was the fourth such example of our government planning an attack against us or our military as an act to provoke us into a war. I believe that any fair viewing of the dozens of videos on the Internet on the evidence that it was, as those who believe it was, our government that did this, as they call it, an inside job. It is known that America used this event as the reason to attack the Taliban in Afghanistan, but even more sinister, it is the fact that this event led to the war on terror, a massive attack on our freedoms and rights. May I suggest that after you complete your viewing of this video, you start a persistent viewing of all of the materials that are on the Internet to convince you that 9-11 was indeed an inside job. Cicero, a Roman senator during the mighty Roman Empire that fell from within, warned the Romans about treason many centuries ago. He was quoted as saying, A nation can survive its fools, even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. The lesson is clear. America cannot survive treason from within. Some who are guilty of this treason are still alive. And I say it is time to let the treason trials begin. And here is the reason why. Graves. An abundance of graves. Thank you so very much. And may God bless America.